I began our conference last week, if you'll remember, last Sunday, uh, by challenging the whole focus on the family movement. Um, so much good came out of that. Uh, the, we, we have so, we, we, in many ways, the church is a debtor to uh, Jim Dobson and, and all of the wonderful things, and a lot of us grew up uh, utilizing those resources, and, and, and a lot of good came out of that. Um, but I did say last week that I, I think that there were two fundamental flaws with that entire movement. And we picked up one last week. And the first flaw um, was, was when you ask about focus on the family, you have to next ask the question, well, who's family? And I said that the movement became disproportionately obsessed with the families of culture. Disproportionately obsessed with the downfall of family in the world while ignoring the downfall of our own families. And so my challenge to us last Sunday was, how about this? How about we focus on our families? How about we spend a week together, not worrying about the trends out there, not worrying about cultural developments out there. How about we spend the week together looking at our families? And we've done that. We've done that. And it's, uh, it's, it's been a good week and the Lord has blessed it. This week I want to take up what I think is the second, uh, the second false premise, um, the second flaw to, to, the, uh, to the focus on the family movement, and it's this. Uh, it's the entire premise itself. Focus on the family. Whoever said that was a good idea? Certainly not your Bible. Nowhere in your Bible... Are you going to be told to, with a singular focus, focus on anything other than your God? And yet we've taken something that is really good and given it a really good focus, but a disproportionate focus. Idolatry is good things, beautiful things. God-ordained things loved too much. Good things treated like ultimate things. And unfortunately, when we treat something that is good as if it were something ultimate, then we end up ruining its goodness. I want to suggest that this is what we have done with family. We have ruined the family by idolizing the family. So strangely... Perhaps the best advice we can give you at the end of this conference on family is that you really do need to love your family less. Focus on the family. In our verse today, Jesus is going to tell us to do the opposite. And in doing so, what we're going to see are two things. The death of family and the resurrection of family. So we're going to see family's death and then its resurrection. Let's begin with the death of family. Look at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. That's setting the scene. Jesus is in the popular phase of ministry where he has amassed a huge following wherever he goes. Um, He went through a stage where um, he was not being uh, contested. They weren't angry at him. They weren't trying to kill him. He was just healing and people were swarming to him. But Jesus isn't into the celebrity preacher thing. And so he's going to challenge the crowd with the lesson on counting the cost. 
make sure you know what you're getting into if you follow me. If you choose to follow me, make sure you know what you are signing up for. And what you are signing up for is the cross. The death of everything you hold dear. If you're going to follow me, you are going to be crucified. Not literally as some did, but it will be a cruciform path of following me. And the first thing that Jesus nails to the cross is the biggest one for their culture and context. He looks at this massive, adoring crowd. In verse 26, he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, brother, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me clear up the language of hate here because I know that's the obvious stumbling block of the text. Of course, we know that Jesus, who commanded us to love our enemies, is not calling for hatred of spouse and children, okay? Jesus is not into hate, and we know that about our Savior. Instead, he is using a technique um, of hyperbole that was used quite a bit in that day that that we still use in, in persuasion, He's using hyperbole to make a point. He's stating it in the extreme so that you get what he's trying to say. And the point here is preeminence. Jesus is saying to this large crowd, if you want to follow me, then I must be preeminent in your life. So preeminent that it looks like you despise everything else in comparison to me. To follow Jesus is a choice to love Jesus so much that in comparison, it makes it look like you hate everything else. That's how much you're supposed to love Jesus. This is what it means to pick up the cross. You're going to have to die to everything if you want to live for Jesus. And just to show the crowds how serious he is about the cost of following, he immediately presses in first and foremost on what they hold most dear. It's tough for Americans to appreciate how important family was to culture and to this culture and still to this day in more traditional cultures like Asia and um, Africa, Middle East and so forth. The family's everything, especially in these ancient cultures. Imagine the security you get from your savings and retirement accounts plus the significance you get from your career and vocation and calling and impact that you make on the world, plus the the reputation you are gaining through social media and other forms of uh, self-promotion, plus the joy you get from your hobby, plus the intimacy you get from your friendship, plus the safety you get from your government, and combine all of that into one, and that's the weight of the family for most people in ancient culture, the source of everything. Therefore, family was far and, a wa- far and away the reigning idol of the day and the reigning idol in Scripture. And this is why Jesus has such harsh words for family in the Gospels. If you study Jesus and say, okay, what does he have to say about family in the New Testament? It's tough to find Jesus say something positive about the family. Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter, whoever loves their children 
more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 8 and Luke 9. This story happens. Jesus says to a man, I want you to follow me. The man says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Again, in a culture where family was everything, this is the highest honor and greatest duty of a son to bury the father. They literally live for that moment, which served as kind of a ritual of patriarchal transition. Let me first go bury my father. This is what Jesus says to that. Let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. Jesus himself practiced this. Practiced what he preached. Matthew 12, Jesus is again surrounded by a crowd so great that his mother and siblings can't get to him. And they need to talk to him. So they send word up through the crowd to speak to him. Again, in that culture, when mama calls, you answer. If mom needs something, you drop everything and come. But listen to his response. They said, hey, your mother and brothers are asking for you. Stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is Mary, whom the Catholics venerate. She can wait. I'm with my real mother and brothers and sisters. What does Jesus have against the family? What's his problem with the family? The answer is nothing. (laughs) As we saw last week, he himself designed it as the highest glory of all creation. Nobody has a higher esteem for family than Jesus. But what he doesn't like and what he relentlessly attacks is the idolatry of family. Now again, in many ways, we cannot relate to this. Different culture, different times. But I would say this. The closest The closest comparison Western individualistic society has to ancient traditional culture is American evangelicalism. I'd take it a step further and say reformed evangelicalism. Us. We're the closest thing to this idea of this um, ingrown uh, family self-worship obsession thing. We are the closest thing you get to traditional ancient culture. Because as I said last week, over the past 30 years, that's what our little subculture has been shaped by. This focus on the family movement. And we've done a pretty good job at it. We have successfully focused on our families. And yet so many of our families lay in ruins. How is that possible? How could we who have focused on the family, we who have attended all the conferences, who read the marriage and parenting books, who take our families to church and Sunday school, who follow the programs and the systems that we're told we're supposed to follow with parenting and marriage, who teach the very programs and systems, we who have poured so much time and resources focusing on our family, how have we lost our families? Because Jesus never told you to focus on your family. Jesus says, hate your family and focus on me. Let's just call it what it is. We haven't been focusing on our families. We've been making graven images. We've been loving our families more than our God. 
We have been loving our children more than our God. We've been loving our spouse or the hope of a spouse more than our God. And the consequences of that idolatry is the same as every idolatry. When we idolize something, it ruins both us and our idol. When we make an idol of parents, spouse, or children, not only will that crush us, it will crush them. And so in love, Jesus says, please, please world filled of family idolatry, please love me instead. Focus on me with such preeminence that it will look like you hate your family in comparison to how much you love me. We need to unfocus on the family and focus on our God. We need to repent of this clean, acceptable, baptized form of idolatry that is even celebrated in evangelicalism. The more you can worship the family, the better. We need to repent of this acceptable idolatry and name it for the wickedness that it is. It is time to let your family go and follow Jesus. But here's what you will discover. On the other side of the death of family comes the resurrection of family. You die to gain. Let's look at that. The resurrection of family. Again, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this, this verse leaves us begging a question, and the question is this. Well, what, do I do, what, what happens if I do choose to hate my family, so to speak, as he's saying here, hate in this way? What happens if I do choose that? If I cannot be your disciple, if I don't hate my family, well, what, what if I make that difficult choice to die to family for you, Jesus? What do I get? And Jesus would say, you get me. Nothing else. I promise you nothing else except that you could be my disciple. You get me. You can't be his disciple if you don't do this, but if you do do this, then you get to be a disciple of Jesus. So ultimately, the question is going to be, is Jesus worth this trade? Is Jesus better than family? We'll get there in a moment, but I wanna wanna explore first how dying to family to follow Jesus will actually resurrect family in the truest way. Notice in verse 26 how even ourselves are included in the death. Did you notice that? You have to hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister. That about covers the family, except for one more member of the family, and that's me. And Jesus even includes me. He says, yes, even his own life. You have to die too. You have to hate yourself too in proportion to how much you love Jesus. And we know this already about Christ's discipleship from his famous saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross, the instrument of execution. If you want to follow me, you have to die. You have to die to yourself to follow Jesus. But then Jesus says this, very interesting, the paradox of Christian discipleship. For whoever wishes to gain his life must lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. If you die, then you will actually discover what it means to live. Stating it differently. If you live for yourself, you will kill yourself. But if you die to yourself and live for Jesus, you will finally come alive. 
Now, Jesus includes my death in this verse 26, which means that the same principle applies to family. Meaning this, if you love your family preeminently, then in reality you are hating your family. And you are hurting them, might I add. Accordingly, by hating them to love Jesus, you are loving them. Again, define hate in proportion to your love for Jesus. If you choose not to love them preeminently, then you will love them rightly. Okay? If you choose not to love your family preeminently, then you are choosing to love them rightly. So you die to family to be a disciple of Jesus only to see that the discipleship of Jesus resurrects family the way Jesus designed family. It's like our solar system. If the earth were at the center of the solar system, then the entire system would fly into chaos and be destroyed because the earth does not have the size and weight to hold the system together in balance. But the sun at the center of the universe does, and the system works perfectly around this massive weight of a star. If you view your life as a solar system, then idolatry is replacing the sun with a planet. That's what idolatry is. And that's why our lives are a chaotic, destructive mess. Family idolatry puts the family at the center of your solar system and life and ruins the whole system. What Jesus is asking you to do here is to put him at the center of the solar system and the sun, S-O-N, at the center of the system makes everything work. And this is why always dying to our idols to live for Jesus actually rescues that what we are idolizing. Idolatry is the ultimate love of a good thing, but you're destroying that good thing. If you repent of that and place Jesus at the center, it rescues those things that you're loving. Those things you fear to lose. So, Let's flesh this out practically, okay? Jesus is very expansive in verse 26, isn't he? He covers it all. So let's just briefly track with him here and go through this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, what happens when you live in bondage to your parents? What happens when your love for parents is not love, but bondage to their opinion and approval. What happens when you live to please them and earn their blessing and love? What happens is that it will crush you. Sometimes you won't ever get it at all, and that's crushing. I'm living for my parents' approval, and I'll never get it. But sometimes they do bless you. Sometimes they do approve of you. Sometimes they do show you love that you're longing for. But here's, here's the tragedy. Even the best parents' blessing and love, you still will say, that's not enough. It's not enough. But what happens when you discover the approval and blessing of Jesus? You know what happens? You're free. You're free from your parents. You don't need them, so you are free to properly love and honor them. When I, when I have to have them, when I have to gain their approval, I can't love them rightly. 
You're not owned by their failures, so you are free to forgive them of their failures and discover a newfound tenderness that hasn't been there for as long as you can remember because you've forgiven them and it's just, I'm not owned by that anymore. You don't have to, you don't have to gain their approval and, and work tirelessly and spend some of you your entire life trying to get the approval of maybe even a parent who's already dead. You can just give up the chase. You don't have to live for their approval, so you are free to disappoint them and not collapse under their expectations and perhaps may, maybe even create some healthy boundaries. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay, I have Jesus. I can even have boundaries in my life. How about that? Jesus says you have to hate your, your spouse, husband and wife. What happens when you ask your spouse to complete and satisfy you the way Jesus is intended to complete and satisfy you? You know what happens. It ruins your marriage. You can't satisfy her. She can't satisfy you. You both are terrible gods for each other. So your marriage is full of disappointment and bitterness and resentment and at times all out hatred that your spouse is not what your idolatry demands them to be. Do you understand that pattern? The bitterness, the hatred, the anger, the disgust at the spouse is rooted in they're not meeting the demands of my idolatry for them. But what happens when you discover the completion and satisfaction and fulfillment that you long for in Jesus. Your marriage is free. You don't need their love, so you are free to love them rightly. Their criticism doesn't enrage you. Their mistakes don't ruin you. Their fickle affection and love does not destroy you. You have Jesus, so you don't need your spouse. And when you don't need your spouse, you are able to love your spouse really well. You have Jesus, so singles, you don't need the fulfillment of the dream of the spouse. And if you get that right, if the Lord does bring you a spouse, you'll really be able to love them well. That spouse is not your answer, whether the spouse that you now have or the spouse that you long for. What about children? Man, Jesus tells us to hate our children in this passage. Well, what happens when you ask your children to be your pride and joy, as we like to say? What happens when their performance becomes my performance? It's hard for me to watch my kids play basketball and they're like seven. Like, I get internally crazy watching a seven-year-old play basketball. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with us? Where our, the silliest performances of our children eat us alive. What happens when my identity is wrapped up in my children? You know what happens? We hurt them and they end up hating us. Whatever you need them to do, whatever you need them to be because of what that says about you, they will typically do and be the opposite. 
Whatever you say, I need you to be this because of what that says about me, typically they'll do the opposite. And sadly, that includes your Christianity. What you must have from them is typically the very place where they will rebel. And if you must have them be the good Christian kid because you can't handle being the parent without the good Christian kid, they're done with your Christianity. But what happens, parents, when you find your identity in Christ, not your kids? Jesus Christ is your pride and joy. He is your boast. He is your success. He is your unfailing identity. Well, suddenly our children are set free. And so is your parenting. You can love them rightly. You can spoil the heck out of them, but you can also discipline the out of them. You're not scared of discipline. I don't need you to be my friend. I'm not scared of what you think of me, child. Whether that's one of my young kids or whether it's an adult, one of you, enabling an older child where it's time to say, I'm not scared of you. Go. Love to help you, but I'm not going to enable you. I'm not scared of you. I've got Jesus. I can handle the thought of you out there on your own. You're free. You are free. You can let them make their own decisions. They will be free to succeed or fail knowing that you don't need them to succeed. Nor will you be crushed by their failures. They will become the young men and women they were designed to be by God, not expected to be by you. And most of all, they will love you and they will love your Jesus who is so glorious that they know you actually love him more than them. Boy, parent, you, parents, do you want Jesus to be big in their, in their lives? Then let them know, kid, I love you, but you have nothing on my Savior. I love Jesus. If you want your kids to hate you, then need them to love you. Likewise, if you want your kids to hate God, then need them to love God. You don't need them. You need Jesus, and it will set them free. Do you see how this works? I'm rambling a bit. I apologize. Do you see how this works? Ultimate focus on the family proves counterproductive in the end. It's not loving your family. It's loving yourself and demanding your family do the same. It's crafting idols and demanding those idols serve you. So Jesus says, hate your family for me that you might learn what it looks like to rightly love your family. So, now here we are at the end of a conference on family saying the best thing you can do for the life of your family is die to your family. And I believe that. The best way to focus on your family is to unfocus on your family and focus on Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his family must lose it, but whoever loses his family for Christ's sake will save it. So for application purposes, I want you to choose, and I'm, I'm sure after this week one of them has risen to the surface, but if not even here, I want you to choose one from this verse that you think is an issue for you, okay? I don't want this to remain in general terms because nobody will ever get down into the Specifics of application and repentance. Look at the expanse here. Jesus intentionally covers it all. Parents, spouse, children, siblings. I want you to answer the question, which one is the greatest threat to my love for Jesus? Do not let it stay general. I want specificity. 
Who in your family is competing most with Jesus? Bring that to your community. Bring that confession to your parish group. Bring that confession to your small group, to your pastors, whatever. Bring that confession and ask them to help you imagine what repentance might look like there. It might be a tough conversation. It might be the decision to stop enabling someone because you fear the cost of firmness. It might be apologizing to them for the first time for your idolatry of them that has crushed them. It might be finally forgiving them for what they have done to you. It might be new boundaries. It might even be saying goodbye. Who in your family is the greatest threat to Jesus and who are you going to have to decide whether Jesus is better? Who's going to force you to make that decision? At the end of the day, that's the question. We don't follow Jesus because it will fix our family. That's just seeking, that's just asking Jesus to serve our idol. No, we follow Jesus because Jesus is worth it, period. We choose Jesus over family because Jesus is better than family, period. So, is Jesus better than family? That's where the rubber meets the road. Is he better? Is Jesus better than your parents' approval? Is Jesus better than your spouse's love? Is Jesus better than your children's success? Is Jesus better? Beloved, you know the answer, but you need to hear it again. Jesus is worth it. 10,000 times over, Jesus is worth it. And if you have not found him to be worth it yet, if you have not said Jesus is better than anything else, I want you to know you're stuck in family too. I know we have a Western culture that does it so differently. We're all individuals and stuff like that. But you cannot escape the power of the family. You, even in our culture, are suffering because of your family. You have hurt and you have been hurt most deeply by family. Jesus will be for you what your family cannot be. It might heal your family. You might lose your family. But either way, you will say, it was worth it. Jesus is better than my family. And it's worth it. Because nobody, nobody can love you like Jesus does. He says in our verse that if anyone wants to come after him, he will have to hate even his own life. Well, Jesus wanted to come after you. And it meant that he would have to hate even his own life. But he did. You were worth it to him. He gave up his life to call you his own. He died to enfold you into his eternal family. Why? Because love. A love that we know in part now, but we shall know in full someday. The Bible begins with a marriage, as we saw last week in Genesis 2, as we kicked off the conference looking at that. The Bible ends with a marriage, the eternal marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. And when the eternal family begins, all temporal family will pass away. Jesus says, there will be no marriage or giving of marriage at the consummation. I will lay Abby down before Jesus and say, you're better. I will lay my children down before Jesus and say, you're better. This family is better. The shadows will give way to substance. What we have tasted in part through earthly family, we will feast upon in fullness through our eternal family. And we will say for all eternity that the choice to unfocus on the family 
on father, mother, siblings, husband, wife, children, to unfocus on our family, that we might focus on Jesus, that choice was eternally worth it. Let me pray. Help us, O oh God, to believe in our bones that you are worth it and better. But as I've already prayed, family, family comes with so much regret. And uh, I pray that nobody would leave here with regret, with, with um, shame, with guilt, with trying to fix the mess, but would just, it would just be repentance and security in your gospel. It would just be, I'm sorry, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Help me to move forth with you as preeminent in my life. Let us leave that way, Lord, and not overwhelmed by failure. And use this table to do just that. This is the family table of our God. We gather together around it, trusting by your spirit that you meet us here as the one who is the answer to everything we are looking into family to satisfy. Meet us here, Jesus, by your spirit as you promise to do in your name. Amen.